Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you today in song, in the word. Last week, as my family was home, um, uh, two of us had COVID, one for the first time, and I had it for the second time. And it was, uh, we were able to tune in, and it was great to see you from home. Normally, we're the ones here in person. It was really great to be online and see you. So as I was spending time this week looking at the text and, and trying to recover from COVID, um, so I feel like that's a free pass, right? Like, if it's terrible today, I can just be like, I had COVID this week. <laughs> can I? Can I please say that? Yes. Okay, come on. Help, help, help a girl out. <laughs> I, I, am, I am safe. I started testing negative on Thursday, so I will not, I'm not a, a walking contagion, thankfully. Um, as I was looking at the text and trying to sit with it during the week and re- recover, um, what really was resonating with me was just how there's a lot of need in the passage. There's a lot of need. I think it resonated with me because I felt like a needy person this week. I had a lot of need. Dan was actually on the mainland at a conference um, that had been, you know, it had been paid for. (laughs) It had been, you know, settled and scheduled. And um, when I got sick, you know, we talked about it. We're like, should you still go? And, you know, he's totally testing fine and feeling fine and, um, you know, had already had COVID three months ago. So we're like, you know, should you go? In the end, we decided because it wasn't really refundable that he should just go. And that was a mistake because I had to parent by myself. <laughs> and I had to write a sermon by myself. <laughs> and all week long, I felt my need very acutely. And I started texting people for help that I never asked for help. Um, I, I literally had like, Pastor Cheryl picked up my kids from school one day. I was just like, I need all the help. It's really hard. I feel sick. <laughs> So I was in touch with my need. I was really in touch with my need this week. And this week also, I've been packing our family's backpacks uh, to give to um, our neighbors leaving Halava prison. And um, as some of you might know, this is our Linton project here at Wellspring. We are gathering backpacks, as I mentioned earlier in announcements, filling them with needed supplies uh, for men who are leaving the prison system without anything, anything of their own. And so as I, you know, got these backpacks and, and um, found items around the house like soap and, you know, supplies that we that were brand new but not used, um, I was really in touch more with my neighbor's need, these, these men that I often forget about. So this whole week, I just felt my own neediness, that of like my neighbors around me, um, and then the neediness I saw in the text. So I invite you, as, as we read through these passages today, and um, we're actually looking at two chapters of the Bible, which is really long. So don't worry, I am not going to read them through. But I'm going to instead tell the story Sunday school style, if that's okay with you, and then we'll highlight some passages to look at the text together. So hope it's okay. I'm going to go in Sunday school mode a little bit. But I invite you, as we look at this story, just to like be aware of your own needs that bubble up. Things in you that you realize, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really vulnerable there. Or, actually, this is an area of need in my life. Or, you know, maybe God is bubbling up the needs of somebody else for me to remember, to bear in mind. Maybe there's a congressperson I need to call, or maybe there's some letters I need to write. Maybe there's some meals I need to send. Um, Maybe there's someone I should call or text. Um, So I just, I invite you, as we we read this text today, as we listen to the story, just to be aware of your own need and see what God um, just has in it for you. So let's pray, because I am, I, I'm needy. <laughs> I need help. So God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, may it be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength 
and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, we've been going through the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. And the story of Joseph pretty much takes up the last section of this book of the Bible. And um, it's been part of our Lenten series, which is called Meant It for Good, where we look at all these things that Joseph went through and all the ways that God um, was able to work, even, you know, really, really terrible things that were not God's will, but God was able to work uh, these things for good. And um, I think I have a slide for that. Oh, first of all, talk about being needy. I, I napped all week long, and my cat napped on me. I knew there was a slide I was forgetting. So <laughs> I invite you sometimes in our places of need. That's also where we can receive comfort. Okay, so moving on with that slide. You're like, why is there a picture of a cat? Do you notice how she's using my ankle? She's resting her head on it. Isn't that cute? Aww. Okay, moving on, moving on. <laughs> okay, let's go to the text. Let's go to the text, shall we? We're um, in Genesis 40. And then just a little bit of context to that. Um, Joseph, um, he, he has these dreams as a child. Um, he shares them with his family. Um, and instead of being like, hey, you have leadership potential, we're going to send you on an internship to, to Egypt. Instead, his brothers let resentment fester. Uh, father doesn't help it at all by, like, you know, treating him like the favorite one. And in the end, um, he is he's outcast by his family. Um, he's separated from his father, who he loves. He is sold as a slave by merchants to Egypt. He gets to Egypt, and he rises quickly um, to be, like, the chief caretaker of this very high-ranking official in Pharaoh's court, only to be falsely accused and find himself in prison. That's where we are today. And, and Pastor Yumigo did a wonderful message last week looking at um, how the text showed us uh, that, that God was with Joseph and like said it so many times at the beginning, the end of the text, uh, to remind us sometimes like it doesn't look at all like God is with you. And it's somehow God, um, the Almighty One, the one who is full of goodness and care, was somehow present to Joseph, even in the middle of that suffering, suffering with Joseph, waiting with him. So um, that's where we pick up our story. We pick up our story in chapter 40 today. And um, I'm going to, I told you I was going to tell it to you Sunday school style, and I wasn't lying. So here is our Sunday school picture. <laughs> okay, so we have Joseph in the middle. He is now in prison. And um, one day Pharaoh gets angry and he throws two of his employees into jail. Um, one of them is a sommelier. He's a, the wine expert, the cupbearer. He's the one who knows all about wines, tastes them, selects them, serves them. He's in prison. And also the baker, the baker. Um, so we have here the, the, the wine guy, Simba, uh, he's over here, and he has some dreams. And he has this dream. Actually, they both have dreams in the night. They're really disturbed. And Joseph goes to check on them in the morning, because these are like VIP guests. And they're like, we had terrible dreams. And Joseph's like, tell them to me. <laughs> Right? He knows interpretations because uh, he's connected with God, and God knows interpretations to dreams, the text tells us. So the, the wine guy says, hey, I had a dream. Um, there was this stock of grapes. Uh, all these grapes burst out of it. I squeezed them in a pharaoh's cup. And um, Joseph's like, that's really good news. Um, there are th three, three sections of grapes. He's like, that means in three days, you're going to be reinstated back to being pharaoh's cupbearer. Yay! So you're only going to be here for three days. And since that was really good news, like... Joseph capitalized on it, and he followed up. He's like, by the way, when you are there, make sure you tell Pharaoh about me. He says this, when all goes well with you, remember me, show me kindness, mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of here. 
He's, I've been stolen from my family. I'm unjustly here. You got to read it. He's great. He's very compelling. Like if I were the wine guy, I'd be like, yeah, I will totally talk about you to Pharaoh. Don't worry. I got you, bro. So, and Joseph, can you imagine what he's thinking in three days? This guy is going to be back in Pharaoh's good graces. Amazing. He might be out of prison. Finally, this is his moment. So then the other guy's like, hey, what about my interpretation? Oh, and just like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, what's your dream? The other guy's like, well, you know, I had three baskets on my head. They're filled with all these baked goods, and then birds are eating at the, out of the top one. And Joseph's, I can imagine, he's probably like, I'm glad I, glad I, you know, told the other guy to talk to Pharaoh, because unfortunately, the meaning of your dream is that in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift off your head. <laughs> your job will be terminated, and your life. Oops. So one great interpretation, one really like painful interpretation, because Pharaoh is not a great guy to work for. He can be a little finicky. Um, so here we go. You know, three days happen. Pharaoh has a birthday party. Guess who's taken out of prison? The sommelier, the wine guy, and the baker. And sure enough, the wine guy is reinstated, and the baker is terminated. Now what happens? Does the wine guy remember? Let's look at the text says. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Can everyone say the word forget? Forget. One more time. Forget. He forgot him. I can kind of feel that in my gut. I remember it was a, a brisk morning in Chicago, and it was 2001, and I was up early on making my way to one of my classes. Um, I was trying to get some work in before my nine o'clock class. And as I was walking across this Chicago, you know, Chicagoland campus, I went to Wheaton, um, Wheaton College, and there were some students that seemed really distressed. And they told me, like, there's been a hijacking. And um, I was still, like, working through my own trauma of, like, arriving to the United States as a young adult. And I was not very empathetic. I was like, oh, whatever. Hijackings happen all the time in the part of the world where I'm from. <laughs> which isn't exactly true, and that was not very compassionate of me. I was like, whatever, hijackings, oh, you're, everyone's so disturbed. And then, um, but as I walked around campus, like, people were really upset. I'm starting to think, okay, I think maybe I'm missing something here, you know, I mean, maybe I'm really minimizing. And so I went to the library, the library had these two, like, TVs, you know, the kind of TVs that had, like, a bubble on them, like the old school kind? They had two of those TVs. And I stood there for over an hour as I watched, um, a, a plane fly into the, the, trade, the World Trade Towers, into the second tower, and then I saw both of them crumble one by one and saw people running out of the downtown area and the cloud of dust that covered everything and then all the emergency services running into that place. And I remember afterwards, the, there's sort of like a rallying cry of never forget. Have you heard that, never forget? It's in all these graphics. Like whenever we have the anniversary of 9-11, um, of the attack on the World Trade Towers, there's always some kind of never forget in there. We will always remember. Like sometimes uh, neighborhoods um, will put it outside. Like this is outside like emergency services. We will never forget. I know I've seen some here. Um, and I wonder, you know, why? Why all this emphasis on not forgetting? I mean, there's even, on the 20th anniversary, there's even paper plates with never forget written on it. And I have to say that feels very American, right? <laughs> like, it does, <laughs> like a little laugh of sugar in there. Um, why did we have all this emphasis on not forgetting, on remembering? And I think it's because it is very human to forget. Why this emphasis on memory? Because it's very human to forget. 
And we didn't want to forget. There had been all this loss of life, all this collective trauma, all this pain, the, the, the her heroics we saw of people running into the buildings to try to save those. We didn't want to forget. So there's this emphasis on memory. Um, I haven't been to the 9-11 memorial since it's been constructed. I went back um, a couple years later, and they were still you know, in the process of building it. But I believe that they have these words from the Roman um, poet Virgil um, engraved on the site. And it says, uh, no day shall erase you from the memory of time. No day shall erase you from the memory of time. So this idea of not forgetting. Um, in the country of Japan, um, historically, they have borne the brunt of a lot of tsunamis and earthquakes. And I think as early as like the 16 or 1700s, I think 1700s are scrolls that have actually written about some of like the tsunamis that, that, um, that their land had encountered and their people had survived. And um, because this language of tsunamis, this memory of tsunamis is, is in people's mind in their history, they actually built all these different stones. So if you go into many different seaside villages in Japan, I know many of you who are from there or live there or visited there, many seaside villages will have a basically like a remembrance stone. It's an ancient marker showing where the, the waters went. This is how far the waters came. And some of, the, some of these markers are so old that you can't really read what's written on them very well. Um, but one of them that you can read very visibly is in the village of Anayoshi. And it's a town with one of these ancient markers. And it says on it in Japanese, high dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build any homes below this point. Now this marker in Anayoshi, it served them well and it helped them remember. No houses were built below this line. And no one in their village died during the 2011 disasters of tsunamis. They remembered, the marker helped them remember. Why this emphasis on memory? Why this emphasis on memory? Because it's very human to forget. In the story, Joseph says, remember me? I was stolen from my land, my family, my people, falsely accused, remember me to Pharaoh, get me out of this prison. But the cupbearer, very human of him, he does not remember, he forgets. Joseph languishes in the dungeon, and that word in Hebrew can also mean pit. He's out of sight, he's forgotten about. And sometimes, friends, I think we can forget too. We can forget the pain of others. Sometimes it's just too much to bear. Sometimes uh, there's other things going through our mind. We have our own stressors, our own worries, and we forget. Sometimes... Maybe you've even been the one forgotten about. Maybe you went to that place to meet up with that friend and they weren't there. They forgot you had a lunch date. That happened to me. It was a dinner date a couple weeks ago. I'm still trying to forgive the person. Don't worry, they don't go to Wellspring. <laughs> I was like, you literally stood me up. <laughs> okay, I have to forgive them now. Woo! <laughs> Or maybe, maybe, you know, I know I've done this with other people before. Like, say you're going to do a favor to someone, and then you forget about it. You don't do it. Like, maybe someone forgot you. Maybe you've been through a really complicated loss, and you feel like people have just moved on. They've forgotten all about it. And I know that sometimes when you've been forgotten about before, it can get easier and easier to think that maybe God has forgotten about you, too. Maybe God has forgotten about you, too. Your marriage isn't getting any better. You're not sure how long you can hold on. Maybe God forgot about me. You know, I felt like God like showed me a future and I felt like I knew what I was doing in life and what career I should do. And now it's just not, it's not working out. I feel stuck and I feel like God forgot about me. 
Or maybe, you know, I haven't been very mindful of God recently. I wonder if he's forgotten about me too. Maybe God forgot about me because I need a miracle and none seem to be on the way. Friends, Joseph needed a miracle to get out of prison and Pharaoh was the ticket there because he had all the get out of jail free cards. Like if Pharaoh wants you out of jail, Pharaoh can just snap Pharaoh's fingers and you're out of jail. Like Joseph needed a miracle. And yet he waited there in prison to be remembered. And the text tells us at the beginning of chapter 41, two whole years. I love the fact that the author wrote in like whole. You know, to say after two years, no, it says after two whole years to remind us that it was painful and hard. And Joseph had been thinking maybe three days, but after two whole years, he's still stuck there. And friends, maybe you feel like you need a miracle. I had a friend who visited me a couple weeks ago from out of town, and I think they could just sense that I'm wrestling with some things, felt a little heavy inside. And um, they texted me from the airport and said, friends, what is the miracle you need from God? And, you know, I've been wrestling with, you know, a new, a new health diagnosis for one of our kids and um, putting some bids on on little cottages in our, in our area that have all gotten overbid. <laughs> Not feeling so great physically. I've been sick again and again all throughout the new year. And, you know, thinking about Wellspring and our upcoming move and waiting for God to provide and show us the way, and feeling hopeful and excited, but also the weight of that. So many things. And they asked me this, what miracle are you needing from God? And friends, Joseph, he named the miracle that he needed. He knew that he needed to get out of prison. And even with he naming the miracle, it still took years before it took place. But still he named it. And I'm inviting you today, I'm going to ask you the same question that my friend asked me. What is the miracle you need? What is the miracle you need? I say this, it's almost hard for me to say this because I'm a lot more used to talking about grief, disappointment, and loss than I am about miracles. I can talk about grief, disappointment, and loss all day and God present in the darkness. Oh, I love that. But talking about miracles, that is a stretch. That is a stretch. Maybe you're a little like me, or maybe you're like, no, you know, I can believe God for a miracle any day of the week. Me, that stuff is hard. I have some inner resistance towards that because I've been disappointed before. So having hope out that miracles can and still do take place, I know they can. I've seen them happen before. But naming it for me, saying that place of my pain, that place of my need, and asking God for a miracle seems really hard and really risky. And I'm going to do it anyway, this time. <laughs> Can't guarantee I'll always do it, but I'll do it this time. I'll just try it once. So I'm inviting you just in the next moment to think, what is the miracle you need? Are you needing like a legal miracle or a relational miracle, a miracle of provision or restitution, a miracle in your career? Are you needing a miracle of freedom? Maybe you feel stuck either in your job or retirement. Maybe you're in a place where people have been not treating you well and you need a miracle of justice. Or maybe you're needing a miracle for someone else. Maybe you're needing a miracle for a child or for a parent. Maybe you're needing a miracle for your houseless neighbor down the street that you drive by every single day on your way home. Maybe you're needing a miracle for your friend from college. Maybe for a spouse or partner. Friends, what is the miracle you need? I invite you to name it. I was um, meeting with my therapist who I meet with regularly and um, 
I was just sharing about life and I recounted this question that my friend had asked me and I got really teary when I said it. So yeah, I've been really thinking about this and she says, oh, you know, well, you know, we're in the season of miracles. And I was like, excuse me? You know, like, sorry, we're on Zoom. Is there any glitch right now? What? What are you saying? And my therapist is Jewish. She's practicing um, in the Jewish faith and she's ethnically Jewish. And she goes, we're in the season of miracles. I'm like, oh, I did hear her right. And then I had to remember, that's right, in two weeks, it's Passover. And Passover is a festival of miracles. It's where our Jewish siblings remember and celebrate God's miracles of liberation and provision in the face of death and empire. They don't have the last say. Instead, there's Passover, there's deliverance. It's a season of miracles. And I was like, oh, that's true. And then I thought, oh, and then it's Easter too, which for us Christians is also a season of miracles, right? It's the, the time of year where we celebrate a God bringing life out of death. It's the time of year where we celebrate the, the, the miracle of God's transformation and reconciliation. No longer are we enemies of God, but rather we are friends. No longer are we strangers, but we're invited to the party. There's so many miracles. No longer do shame, guilt, and blame keep us from God and each other because Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus willingly carries all the blame, shame, and guilt of the world to show us God will go to any extent possible, even to the world of the dead, to free us to bring us home. We're in a season of miracles. Friends, people may forget, but God remembers. Number one in your notes. People may forget in the season of miracles. Let's remember, we might forget. We won't always remember, but God remembers. I love in the book of Genesis, you know, this, this God remembering Joseph, it's set in this whole context of God remembering different people. First of all, God remembers Noah and his family after the flood. God remembers Abraham. And then the text tells us that God remembered Rachel. She was really, um, she was unable to have children. God remembered her. She was able to give birth to her firstborn son, who was Joseph. <laughs> so God remembered Joseph's mom. God remembered Rachel. And in Exodus 1, so the very next book of the Bible, we once again have God remembering, but this time it's in the context also of human forgetfulness. So like a new Pharaoh arises who totally doesn't know like all the good that Joseph had done, forgets about Joseph, decides to subjugate all their descendants, and then God remembers. See, throughout this text, we have all these recurring emphases of the writers and editors of these stories who wanted us to know that yes, humans may forget, but God remembers. The psalmist in Psalm 105 sings that God remembers God's covenant forever. The psalmist in Psalm 103 reminds us that even as a father has compassion on his children, so God will remember and have compassion on you. The prophet in Isaiah 49 reminds us and says, speaking for God, that can a woman forget the child that she is nursing? Even if she could forget, God says, I will not forget you. Friends, it's human to forget. It's part of who we are, and yet God, part of who God is, God remembers. And friends, into the backdrop of people maybe forgetting about you, maybe in the backdrop of your need, your difficult situation, your loss, your wrestling, God remembers. And in the larger backdrop of injustice, pain, and loss in our world, God remembers that too. What do you need from God? This is a season of miracles. It's also the season of divine reversals. 
Now, Passover, we look at that, it's coming up in a couple weeks, is this reversal of power dynamics. Israelites were slaved, then they were freed. They had been at the beck and call of others, now they get to call the shots. Right Over the years, um, they'd had their possessions taken from them. They weren't able to earn any money. And now as they leave, as they leave Egypt after Passover, they're actually, this text says they're plundering Egypt. Like Egyptians are literally like, here's gold, jewelry, you know, um, food, here's different supplies. Like, just take it, take it, take it. Because they just want, they, they want these people gone already. It's this great reversal. In a couple weeks, we'll also see Good Friday. Good Friday is the great reversal. Good Friday is when we realize that God is not angry and out for blood, but rather we are the angry ones out for blood. We are the guilty ones. And God is the one on the cross identifying with the lost and the least, gracious, loving, forgiving, accompanying. It's great reversal. We see what God is like, and we also kind of see what we're like. Easter is a great reversal, right? Usually life ends in death and suddenly death reverses itself and there's life coming out of the grave. I mean, that's a huge reversal, right? Suddenly out of God's love in life is birthed a life for all, all who will come that will never die. It's this divine reversal, right? From death to life. And this brings us to number two in your notes. And we're about to get to second set of dreams. Um, when the time is right, God can reverse the most irreversible of circumstances. When the time is right, God can reverse the most irreversible of circumstances. See, Genesis 40 ends, right? Joseph's still in prison. He's forgotten about. And the two whole years go by. Remember that phrase, two whole years? And suddenly, everything is reversed. And so, since I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm going to do the Sunday school version again. You ready for our cartoon? <laughs> okay, here we go. Here it is. All right. So one night, Pharaoh has two deeply disturbing dreams. He's so unsettled by them that he can't rest after he's had them. He brings out all the wise people, all the sorcerers, magicians, like consults, consultants, all of them, and nobody can help him. So he's deeply disturbed. Here are his dreams. They look very scary, don't they? They're terrifying. <laughs> so while he sleeps at night, he dreams there are seven sleek and fat, healthy cows that come out of the Nile. And they're there, they're just grazing there, when suddenly out of the Nile River comes seven gaunt and wiry cows that eat up the healthy cows, but they stay gaunt and unhealthy. That's the first dream. So Pharaoh wakes up with a start, it's very scary, he goes back to sleep, and he has another dream. And this time he dreams that there are seven heads of grain on a single stalk. And they're like nice and plump and like so productive. And suddenly seven other heads of grain sprout and they swallow up the healthy ones. And that's it. Pharaoh is deeply disturbed. The entire palace is disrupted. Nobody can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And here, now we go to another picture. This is from the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, am I saying it right? Wait, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I haven't seen it since 1999. So here we have Pharaoh, who is actually like Elvis, is the king, gets to sing the song. And, and guess who's brought out of prison? Joseph! He's not clothed very much, um, but he's out of prison. He still needs to glow up. This is why we have backpacks, friends so that nobody has to go through that. <laughs> so here we have the king. He calls, he, his, um, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. We got to go on from that slide. Where is the slide? Okay, there we go. Don't have to, don't have to look at it anymore. Shoo, okay. <laughs> 
Joseph is brought from the, the dungeon. He's maybe clothed. I think he has time for a shave. It literally says he got a shave. So like the cupbearer is like, I can't believe I forgot to tell you. I know someone who can interpret dreams. So Joseph gets on the scene. He talks with the king and he interprets the king's dream. He says there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of catastrophic famine. The famine will be so bad, it will eat up the memory of the seven years of plenty that came beforehand. You have two of these dreams because it's going to be happening soon. There's nothing we can do to change it. Now, in the previous chapter, after Joseph interprets the two dreams correctly, or interprets the dreams correctly, remember he adds his own message. He's like, hey, don't forget about me. Talk to me about Pharaoh. Talk to me to Pharaoh. Well, now he also adds his own, he adds his own take too, right? Like, I love Joseph. He's not just going to say his bit. He's going to like, he's going to say what he wants to say too. And sure enough, he goes on. He's like, here's what you should do, King. Here's what you should do. You need a you need to, during the years of plenty, you need to have someone in charge that's going to like take, you know, a certain percentage of all the plenty and put them up in storehouses so that during the years of famine, there's enough that people can come and have food. And here we get to the surprise. The get a jail free card is handed. A surprising reversal of seemingly irreversible circumstances. Genesis 41, 37 through 40. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? one in whom is the spirit of the gods? And Pharaoh said to him, to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as wise and discerning as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh is so struck by this interpretation, by this wise counsel, that he, in a surprising reversal, now puts Joseph in charge of everything. He gets the he gets the emperor's own ring. <laughs> he gets Pharaoh's ring. He gets new clothes, jewelry, wealth, power. He gets to ride in a chariot, a second in command. Here's also from the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Somehow Joseph has had a haircut. I don't know. It's probably a different cast. He gets to ride in Pharaoh's chariot. <laughs> See, Sunday school, you have to have like visual aids, right? And I don't have a flannel graph, so this is as good as it gets. <laughs> So from prison change to gold chains, he's got some drip going on. Joseph is in an entirely different situation than he began in, right? From prison to palace, or as my, my megachurch brothers would say, from pit to pinnacle, which is kind of fun. And I wish I'd thought of that first, but whatever. <laughs> he goes from having no family in Egypt to suddenly he has a new family. He, he marries Asenath, and Asenath is a high-ranking woman. She is the only North African matriarch credited with receiving an inheritance in Israel. She's credited with producing two tribes, two of them in Israel. The foreigner becomes family in Asenath and Joseph's union. Everything changes for Joseph. His economic status, where he lives, his finances, his relationships, his legal status, everything is overturned. Where he is in his career, all in one move. And instead of being forgotten about, now Joseph gets to do some forgetting. Let's look at this. Genesis 41. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. It's a Hebrew name. And said, it is because God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful. In the land of my sufferings. 
I love getting to hear Joseph's own words there. God has made me forget all my troubles. And I suspect when he says, all my family's household, all my father's household, I'm, I'm guessing that has more to do with feeling like there's some healing and mending going on than like literally forgetting them. Like that, that is still an unresolved part of the story, right? And like, I think the past was beating inside Joseph like a second heart, right? That tension is not yet resolved. He has not yet been reconciled. There's no forgiveness. There's no repentance. He's not seen his father yet. But at the same time, there is joy and blessing and fruitfulness and a kind of holy forgetfulness. But he can live with the past because what is so good right now is helping to heal that. Friends, when the time was right, Joseph's circumstances were entirely reversed. And so were Pharaoh's. Let's think about this for a second. Pharaoh's the one used to giving the orders, right? As king, he gets to decide about how he receives messages, who comes and gives them to him. I'm sure they have a way of giving him bad news very delicately because he is Pharaoh and he could decide to put you in prison or have your head cut off, right? And suddenly, he's given a message that he has no control over. He might have control over the day who comes to give him the messages, but God is the one who rules the night in God's holy darkness. The night belongs to God who will speak as God wants. And friends, what I see in this is that the best wisdom of the empire, it falls short in light of this dream, right? They can't interpret it. The empire is helpless before the power of God who comes like a thief in the night. Like a thief because he robs the king of confidence, control, and expected future. It's this divine reversal. You see this? You think that, Potiphar, that Pharaoh is the most, you know, powerful person of his day, and he is. But even his power runs short. Even his power is revealed as being not very much in comparison to God's. And we have this remarkable reversal. We have the whole future of an empire that now falls on the foreign imprisoned slave. It's this topsy-turvy nature of how God works, this divine reversal. Friends, Joseph's circumstances were reversed and so were Pharaoh's. And the timing had to be right, though, right? If God gave Pharaoh these disturbing dreams too soon, um, if the impending disaster was so far in the distance, Pharaoh would have no sense of urgency about it. Oh, that's going to happen in 20 years? Great, we'll get on it later, right? If you tell Pharaoh too late and you can't do anything about it, Pharaoh's not going to be happy and the world definitely won't be saved. So when I said the time was right, it meant that Pharaoh and the empire were ready to be disrupted and changed. The time was right. Joseph was able to lead with fairness and wisdom. The time was right for a divine reversal. And friends, what needs to be reversed in your life? What's something you've been waiting for for a long time? Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for someone in your family or community. Maybe here at Wellspring. Maybe it's just something in need that's been weighing, weighing on you in your mind, in your soul, about the world. Something that needs to be reversed. Can you talk to God about it? So we get ready to close. I invite you to go through these questions on your own this week. You know, what's the miracle you need from God? What needs to be reversed in your life? Sit with them. See what comes up. See if something comes up for somebody else. Maybe a miracle someone else needs. A reversal that needs to take place in someone else's life. Maybe your remembering will be key to that. As we close, I just want to draw your attention to the structure here. So the whole story so far of Joseph is, is structured. And please get, can you get a little nerdy with me? 
I'm like, I've lost energy, like COVID is winning. <laughs> okay, we're going to get nerdy for a second. There are three sets of dreams that structure Joseph's story. And I think I drew a little very hard to read thing here. I did. There's two dreams um, in the beginning, two dreams in the middle, two dreams in the end. Two dreams in the beginning are in the parents' house. This is in Genesis 37. Then there's two dreams in prison in Genesis 40. Then there's two dreams in the palace in Genesis 41. You see these three sets of two dreams, and they really structure the story. And the first one is Joseph's dream. The middle one is, you know, the Baker Butler dream. And the third one is Pharaoh's dream right? So we see this. But you know what? Each of them push forward. Because there's a structure here. And can you imagine, do you think Joseph felt like there was structure to his life when he's going through this? I don't think he felt there was any structure at all. He just probably felt like, you know, before Egypt, after Egypt. Like, who knows how he structured his life? But I doubt that he had the careful structure that many storytellers and editors gradually put into this text. Carefully arranged it with these three sets of two dreams. And friends, when we're going through our story, it can often feel not structured. It can feel like there's no, you know, hidden themes going through because we are still in it, right? Those sometimes surface much later. So Joseph, this would have felt like chaos, I'm guessing. But here we have the structure in the text. I want to draw your attention to this because over it all runs God's dream. Over it all runs God's dream. And these little three movements in the text, these, these three sets of two dreams, each of them move God's dream forward. God's dream to save the world from this impending ecological disaster. God's dream to keep the thread of Abraham's descendants alive so one day a savior could be born. God's dream connects it all, keeps it moving. Each one of these dreams moves the plot line along. And friends, you might not sense any overarching anything right now in your story. It might feel like there's no structure at all. It might feel like you're stuck or tired or who knows? You know how you feel. But friends, there is a structure to our life. And one day we will be able to see the hidden pinnings of it. Sometimes, even right now, looking back, you might be able to set some themes, some different, different movements in your life, some transitions, and make meaning out of those. Here we have God's dream which surrounds and connects and is kept alive, even when it looks like all the other dreams have died. Friends, this is the season. What miracle do you need from God? What is the divine reversal you need? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God who can turn things around. Thank you that your dream is alive and tenacious that your ability to save does not depend on force or an empire, but instead on vulnerable and open-hearted people. We pray that, Lord, you will move us closer to the good news. You'll move us closer to your blessing, your promise, your dream in the world. You would help us remember and you remind us that we are not forgotten, that you can and will do what you've promised. Amen.